This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. And one of the most popular thriller shows on radio was Suspense. I think I've related this story before about my experience as a young boy, probably about eight or nine. I was listening to a suspense story when my sister Eleanor, who was three years my senior, was supposed to be babysitting me while my mom and dad were out. Well, we were living in the country just outside of London, Ontario, small hamlet called Crumlin. Anyway, here I was all huddled up beside the big old radio listening to this scary story. And I remember the thread of the story, too. A dark and stormy night. What else? A woman stranded in her broken-down car on a country road. And while listening to the radio, she hears a report of a deranged killer who's just escaped from prison. And what does she see out of the windshield of her car? A man trudging toward her, and he's got a club in his hand, comes up to the car window, and she screams. Well, about this time, I heard a tapping on the window. I looked up. Half frightened to death, what I saw peering back at me through the window was a horribly lit-up face looking right back at me. Jeez, my heart almost came pounding into my chest before the face outside transformed into that of my sister, who had screwed up her face and put a light bulb or at least a flashlight under her chin for chilling effect. She went into gales of laughter. I didn't. I wanted to punch her out, but I knew I wouldn't win on that score either. Big sisters. Hmm. So, I have had some experience dealing with the effects of a scary radio program like Suspense. In tonight's episode, Robert Young stars in the tale of a man who is having terrible nightmares about Raymond Burr. Suspense. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Tonight from Hollywood, we bring you two of America's most artful and distinguished stars. From the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer lot spot studios comes Mr. Robert Young. And from Warner Brothers, Miss Geraldine Fitzgerald. Mr. Young and Miss Fitzgerald are with us to play in an unusual tale by the unusual James Thurber. An excerpt from the book, My World and Welcome to It, called A Friend to Alexander, adapted for radio by Freya Howard, is tonight's study in Suspense. And of Geraldine Fitzgerald is his wife, Bess, who relates these events to us. We again hope to keep you in... Suspense. Harry was a laughing, happy-go-lucky fellow before he began to have those dreams... I guess he was pretty much like dozens of other men who go to work every morning, settle down in soft chairs with their newspapers after dinner, 
and like a weekend in the country now and then. He was fond of easy living and good times. Like everyone else, he talked of the war, rationing tires, and his golf scores. Until... Until those nightmares began to plague him. At first, I was amused. You know, I've been dreaming about Aaron Burr every night. What for? Well, how do I know what for? <laughs> Aaron Burr is a funny person to be dreaming about nowadays. Why? I mean, with all the countries in the world at war with each other. What's so funny about dreaming? Maybe you're upset. Well, everybody dreams, don't they? I don't see why you'd see Aaron Burr in your dreams. Well, I do. Where do you see him? Oh, places. In Washington Square, or Bowling Green, or on Broadway. Even here on 55th Street? Mostly downtown. I'll be talking to a woman in a Victoria. A woman holding a white lace parasol. Oh. And suddenly there will be Aaron Burr. Bowing and smiling and smelling like a carnation. Telling his stories about France and getting off his insults. Who is the woman in the Victoria? Hmm? What? The woman. Who is she? Well, how do I know? You know about people in dreams, don't you? They're nobody at all. Or everybody. Ah, but you see Aaron Burr plainly enough, though. I mean, he isn't anybody or nobody. Or everybody. All right, all right. You have me there, but I, I don't know who the woman is. Are you sure? What's more, I don't care. Maybe it's Madame Jumel or... Mittens Willett, a girl I knew in high school. Who's Mittens Willett? She was a famous New York actress in her day, 50 years ago or so. She's buried in an old cemetery on 2nd Avenue. I've seen the tombstone. That's very sad. Why is it? Oh, I mean, she, she probably died young. Almost all women did in those days. He's a vile, cynical cad. I was standing and talking to Alexander Hamilton when Burr stepped up and slapped him in the face. When I looked at Hamilton... Who do you suppose it was? I don't know. Who? My brother, Walter. The one I've told you about. The one who was killed by that drunk in the cemetery. Harry, I never could get that story straight. I've told you about it a dozen times. This drunk came up to him when his back was turned and... What was he doing in the cemetery? That's not the point. He was killed. That's what's important. And I loved him very much. I don't understand what... What's he... the use of telling you every time I mention it? You start asking the same questions. I understand now, dear. When you looked at Hamilton, he was your brother, Walter. Yes. Harry, maybe... Maybe we ought to go to the country for more weekends. Weekends? Yes. I'm going to bed. For a time that evening, I worried about Harry. Not about his dream. Why shouldn't he dream? But I wondered about his health. He looked so, so worried somehow, so unlike himself. I was glad when he went to bed. A good night's sleep was just what he needed, I thought. How could I know? The next morning, we were quietly eating our grapefruit when Harry flung down his spoon. I wish he'd go back to France and stay there, him and his la-la. Who, dear? <laughs> oh, you mean Aaron Bird. Did you dream about him again? Yes, he said la-la to me. Why should he say la-la? I was at the tavern. We were drinking ale, and I said something funny. I don't remember what it was. Something amusing about what uh, Ben Franklin had said to Washington once. One of those things, you know. No, I don't. Have some, have some more coffee, dear. I don't want any coffee. I made this remark, and everyone laughed. Everyone but Burr, that is. He sort of sniffed. And then he said, la-la. Well, why not? I mean... 
Is there anything wrong about him saying la-la? It was the way he said it. He was sneering at me. They all noticed it. Who oh, dear? Who noticed The others, all of them. And Hamilton. I was there with Hamilton. It was swell until Burr came in. Aaron Burr. I don't see why you dream about him all the time. Don't you think you should take some luminal? I'm not sick, I tell you. I know what I'm dreaming. I just thought, well, it's always Burr, and that seems odd. Well, why? Why shouldn't I dream about Burr if I want to? But you don't want to. No, but I can't help it. Everywhere I go with Alexander, sooner or later Burr shows up and makes those nasty remarks. Last night he elbowed Alexander out of his way, did it deliberately. Alexander? Hamilton. Oh, Alexander Hamilton. Yes, goodness knows I'm familiar enough with him by this time to call him by his first name. Uh, Harry, you know, we might go to the old Drover's Inn this weekend. You like it there. Hamilton has become not only my brother, Walter, but practically every other guy I've ever liked. Don't you like the old Drover's Inn anymore? Isn't it natural that Hamilton should represent my brother and guys I like? That's natural, isn't it? Yes. I suppose it is. Well, then why are you looking at me like that? No, dear. I I wish you'd go and see Dr. Fox. I don't want to see Dr. Fox. I want Aaron Burr to stop sneering at me in my clothes. He looks at me and his lips curl up and he says, The law, Mr. Andrews, what odd tastes you have. Mm. I wish you'd go and see Dr. Fox. I'm going to the zoo and feed popcorn to the rhinoceros. That makes things, things seem right for a little while anyway. I thought he'd forgotten all about that ancient pistol duel, because for two days after that, he lost his haggard, tired look and actually seemed cheerful. But one night, about five in the morning, he came into my room in pajamas and bare feet. His hair disheveled and his eyes wild. He got him. He got him. The rotter got him. Alexander fired in the air and smiled at him. Just like Walter must have smiled. Like Walter? Oh, yes, dear. Your brother Walter, who was killed in the cemetery. It was at Weehawken in New Jersey. What? Your brother? No, Hamilton and Burr. The duel. Hamilton had a white ruff around his neck. Burr was in black tights. French clothes. Alexander lifted his pistol and fired in the air and then smiled at Burr. And then that fiend from hell took deliberate aim. He took so long. He meant to take his time about it. I saw him grin. And then he pointed his pistol at Alexander and fired. He killed him in cold blood, the foul scum. Oh, darling. <laughs> Don't, darling. Here. Here, dear. Take some of these pills. I don't want any. Oh, take it. You'll feel better. I don't want any, I tell you. Here, darling. Swallow. Please, Swallow. There. That's better. Chad. A rotten, sneaking Chad. He grinned just as he fired. And Alexander clutched himself at the stomach. Then shook his head and tried to walk forward. Then he fell. With his mouth open as though he wanted to say something. And Burr stood there. Grinning. He was better after that, but I kept urging him to see Dr. Fox. At first he refused, but later he decided to humor me. (laughs) 
He was humoring me by this time. And Dr. Fox, too. How you been feeling, Doc? Oh, fairly well, Mr. Andrews. My pulse has been a stiff. <clears throat> now, uh, just what seems to be the trouble? Nothing. Nothing wrong with me. He has nightmares. Mm. You look a little underweight. Perhaps your diet. Oh, I'm not underweight. Overweight, maybe, but not underweight. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting enough exercise? Same as usual. He's, he's worried about something. He always has this same dream. Aha, a dream, eh? What kind of a dream? Just a plain old dream. Aha. No, it isn't. It's about his brother, Walter, who was killed in a cemetery by a drunken man. Only it isn't really about him. Really? Why, very few people are actually killed in cemeteries. Yeah, it's an interesting coincidence, if I may say so. You mean, you know somebody who was killed in a cemetery, too? Is that the coincidence? No, I, I meant your brother being killed in a cemetery. You know, dead in a cemetery. A sort of, uh... Do you follow me? No. I think you should go see Dr. Fox, Dr. Fox. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, very interesting. I, uh, I wonder if you'd mind stepping into the next room, Mr. Andrews. I want to give you a thorough examination. Uh, right in here, sir, and we'll just have a look. Well, I hope you're satisfied. You heard what he said. There's nothing the matter with me at all. I'm glad your heart is so fine. He said so, you know. He said your heart is fine. Sure, it's fine. My heart's fine. Everything's fine. And, and you know, you know what I was thinking? No, what? I was just thinking that now that Alexander Hamilton is dead, why, you won't see any more of Aaron Burr. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> But I was wrong. Aaron Burr did not leave my husband to sweeter or more peaceful dreams. Harry said nothing about it for several mornings, but I could tell he was still being tortured by those ghosts. He brooded over his breakfast. He didn't answer me when I spoke to him. I dropped my butter knife, and he jumped. What was that? Only my knife. Oh. Harry. Are you still dreaming about that man? Oh, I wish I hadn't told you about it. Forget it, will you? I can't forget it with you going on this way. Can't you forget I mentioned it? Maybe you should see a psychiatrist. Oh, bosh. What What does he do now? What does who do? Aaron Burr. I don't see why he keeps coming into your dreams now. He goes around bragging that he did it with his eyes closed. Says he didn't even look. Didn't look when? When he killed Alexander in that duel. Well, what... He claims he can hit the ace of spades at 30 paces blindfolded. Furthermore, since you ask what he does, he... He jostles me at parties now. I think you should stay out of this, Harry. It wasn't any business of yours anyway. And it happened so long ago. I'm not getting into anything. It's getting into me. Can't you see that? I see that we've got to get you away from here. Oh, maybe if you slept someplace else for a few nights, you wouldn't dream about him anymore. I don't know. Let's go to the country tomorrow. We'll stay at the Lime Rock Lodge. Bess, why can't we visit the Crowleys? They live in the country. All right, fine. Bob has a pistol, and we could do a little target shooting. What do you want a pistol for? Plenty of open space. I think you'd want to get away from shooting. Yeah. Sure it is.
The vacation seemed a success at first. When we arrived at the Crowley's house in the cab, I thought I'd left my suitcase at the railroad station. Harry laughed his old, normal laugh for the first time in many days as he found the bag and handed it to me. And then he leaned over and kissed me. Ah, good old Connecticut. Oh, Harry, this is wonderful. <laughs> oh, we'll have a grand time. Babe. Yes, dear. Hello, Matt. Hi, Harry. Here they come. Good old Bob. Remind me to tell you that rabbit joke. Mm, hello, Madison. I'll take your bags, Mr. Andrews. Thank you, Madison. Good to see you. Uh, thank you, sir. Hello there. Chris, what a wonderful Well, Bob, Hi, how's the old country squire? Oh, fine. How have you been? Never better. Boy, it's good to be here. Hello, Alice. Well, you too. I'm so glad you've come. It's kind of dull here in the hinterland. Oh, I'm glad, too. <laughs> so, hey, wait till you get one of our extra special cold martinis into you. Mm. You'll be in ship shape. Still know how to mix them, huh? Better never. Get lots of practice these long country winters. <laughs> oh, it was grand, seeing Harry's face relaxed and smiling over his cocktail glass. When I went to bed that night, I felt that at last that nasty old business of the dream was over. And I was happy. But when I woke the next morning, when I woke, I saw my husband lying rigid on his back, staring at the ceiling. One Henry Andrews, an architect. What's the matter, dear? Nothing. Oh, why don't you go back to sleep, Harry? It's only eight o'clock and this is the country. One Henry Andrews, an architect. What are you talking That's about? That's what he calls me. Calls you who? One Henry Andrews, an architect, keeps saying in his nasty little sneering voice, One Henry Andrews! Oh, Harry, please don't yell. You'll wake the whole house. Honey, people want to sleep. I'm beneath you. I'm just anybody. I'm a man in a gray suit. Be on your good behavior, my good man, he says to me. Or I shall have one of my lackeys give you a taste of the riding crop. Why should he say that to you? You ask me why. He wasn't such a great man, was he? I mean... Didn't he try to sell Louisiana to the French or something behind Washington's back? He was a traitor. Then why worry what he said? He was a scoundrel. But a very brilliant mind. I was in hopes you, you weren't going to dream about him anymore. I thought if we came up here... It's him or me. I can't stand this forever. Neither can I. As I had expected, Harry spent most of the afternoon with Bob shooting at targets. At first, they just aimed at the paper squares. It all seemed to be good-natured and in fun. After a while, Harry stood with his back to the dead tree trunk on which the targets were nailed. Then he walked 30 paces ahead in a stiff-legged manner, and his face was set in stern lines. His revolver was at arm's length above his head when he turned suddenly and fired... Bob dropped to the ground, scared. Hey, what's the big idea, Harry? But Harry didn't answer. He started to walk back to that dead tree trunk again. Then with his back to the target, he began marking off the 30 paces. Bob called to him. I think they kept their arms hanging straight down. I don't think they stuck them up in the air. But my husband continued to count off. At the 30th step, he lowered his arm, wheeled about suddenly and fired from his hip. Hey there, watch out! Two of the shots missed the tree, but the last one hit it. Like a mechanical man or someone in a trance, Harry began to walk back to the tree again without a word. His lips tight, his eyes bright, his breathing coming fast. And look, it's my turn! But Harry about-faced and stalked on. This time when he fired, his eyes were closed. 
Poor Bob didn't know what to make of this strange behavior. Hey, good heavens, man. Give me that gun, will you? Without a protest, Harry let him have it. For the first time, he spoke. I... I need a lot more practice, I guess. Well, not with me standing around. Come on, let's get back to the house and shake up a drink. Gee, I've got the jumps. I need a lot more practice. I guess I must have slept soundly that night because I didn't hear him leave the room. He must have crawled out of bed, dressed silently and crept out of the room. The sun was just coming up and the light was hard and the air was cold. Then I heard the shot. I threw on the dressing gown and ran downstairs. The Crowley's were in the hall. Oh, good heavens, there. Is Harry all right? You sound like it. Where is he? What's he doing? It sounds as though he's out behind the studio shooting. Alice. Oh, no, no. Take it easy, Bess. Bob will go out and get him. Maybe maybe he had a nightmare or walked in his sleep. No, no. He never walked in his sleep. He's awake, all right. Now, let's go down and get some coffee. He'll need some. Yes, I'll need some, too. Hey, what the dickens is the matter with him, anyway? I don't know. I'm so sorry. Bob, to... you go get him. At your service, madam. Alive or dead. Bob, stop it. Okay. I'll do my best. Come on, Bess. We'll go to the kitchen. What's that noise? Where? In the kitchen. <coughs> oh. Oh, it's you, Madison. Uh, yes, ma'am. Well, you're shaking. I, I was just wondering, ma'am. No, I... no, no. It's all right, Madison. You go on back to bed. Oh, Clotheda was scared, ma'am, and I oh, thought... Well, you tell Clotheda that it's all right. Mr. Andrews is uh, shooting a little. He couldn't sleep. Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes. I don't know what to do, Alice. (laughs) I guess the Crowleys were relieved when the cab came to drive us to the station early that day. Their maid had threatened to leave. The neighbors were complaining about the early morning disturbance. And their own nerves were ragged. Oh, I'll need a drink after that. Yes, Nate minus this one. Gee, I'm sure glad he's gone. Well, it was either he or Clotheda. You can't afford to lose a good cook these days. But what do you think's the matter with him? I don't know. It's what Clotheda would call the shoots, I guess. You know, he said a funny thing when I went out and got him this morning. Well, let's have it. I could stand a funny thing. I asked him what the deuce he was doing out there in that freezing air with only his pants and shirt and shoes on. And you know what he said? What? I'll get him one of these nights. That's just what he said. By this time, I was really frightened. When we returned to the city, Harry was a picture of gloom. Our first night back, I looked at him as he lay on the chaise long in my bedroom in his blue dressing gown, smoking a cigarette. He was haggard and tired. And he kept biting his lower lip. I mixed a scotch and water nightcap for him. No, thanks. No liquor. I need a steady hand. Watch my hand. Does it tremble? No. Is it steady? Yes. Very. That's good. That's very good. You need a steady hand, you know. For what, dear? Oh, things. Harry, 
Will you sleep in my room tonight? No, you keep shaking me all night to keep me awake. You're afraid to let me meet you. Are you still on that? Why do you think everybody's better than I? I can outshoot him the best day he ever lived. Oh, of course, In the dear. whisker. Right next to the middle button. He has three big pearl buttons on his waistcoat. Came from France. Why don't you dream about somebody else? Anybody else? Please. You'd like that, wouldn't you? You'd like to have me dream about somebody who wouldn't hurt a fly. Somebody like that. Because you'd know I'd never get in a duel with him. A duel? You're dreaming of a duel now? Ever since Hamilton died. Burr knows I hate him. It's nearly over now. Harry. It's him or me. I'll get him, the rotter. But Harry... I know I'll get him. See, I have a modern pistol. He has to use an old-fashioned single-shot muzzle loader. <laughs> Is that quite fair? Fair? What do I care if it's fair or not? Was it fair the way he shot Alexander? Was it? Don't be mad with me, Harry. Oh, I'm... I'm sorry, darling. I'm very unhappy. I'm sorry, darling. And I'm worried sick. Well, I'm sorry, darling. Don't cry. Please don't cry. It upsets me when you cry. I mustn't be upset. I must be very calm and rested. My hand must be steady tonight. Especially tonight. I'm so worried, Harry. Don't worry about me. I'll be all right. I'll be fine. My hand is like a rock. Later, when I kissed him goodnight, I knew it was really goodbye. He didn't say anything and neither did I. It's just that he seemed so far away, in, in another world. And each moment I felt that he was becoming more and more remote. Something told me he wasn't coming back. I couldn't sleep. After an hour of tossing and turning, I went to Harry's room. He was sleeping peacefully. I sat down in his chair and watched over him for a long while. Then, finally, I must have fallen asleep. Beautiful morning. It was about five in the morning when I awoke. Harry was talking in his sleep. Oh, yes, the doctor. Good of you to come, doctor. Yes, often missed you at this hour. Harry. Are they loaded? Splendid. Harry, wake up. Yes, I'm perfectly ready. Is Mr. Burr? He is good. Shall we proceed? No, I do not care to make a statement. Very well. Yes, I understand perfectly. Ten paces. Turn and fire at the dropping of the handkerchief. Yes, ten paces. Thank you for acting as my second, Mr. J. Of course, extremely good of you. Very well, then I'm quite ready. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. puzzled when he examined Harry the next morning. Oh, extraordinary. His heart was as sound as a dollar when I saw him the other day. He seemed to be fine, Dr. Fox. I can't understand it. What? Why his heart stopped as if he'd been shot. Shot? Yes. Of course, there are no gunshot wounds and no... Shot. 
Now, Mrs. Andrews. That's it. Soft. Now, now, you'll have to calm yourself. You can't help him now. I should have known it would happen. I kept staring at Harry's right hand. The three fingers next to the index finger were closed stiffly on the palm, as if gripping the handle of a pistol. The taut thumb was doing its part to hold that invisible handle tightly and unwaveringly. But it was the index finger which held my eye the longest. I looked carefully to make sure I was right. Yes. Yes, it was so. That index finger was curved inward slightly, as if it were about to press the trigger of a pistol. So there had been a duel after all. Perhaps there was no gunshot wound. But Harry had been shot as surely as he was dead. Dr. Fox saw me staring and spoke to me. What are you looking at, Mrs. Andrews? Harry never even fired a shot. Aaron Burr killed him the way he killed Hamilton. Well, what are you talking about? Aaron Burr shot him through the heart. I knew he would... Yes, but there's no evidence. I knew he would. Then Dr. Fox put an arm around me. He looked at me gently and and a bit frightened, the way I used to look at Harry when he told me about his dreams. He led me to his assistant and whispered something. He thought I didn't hear him, but I did. It's crazy. Stark, raving crazy. I let the assistant take me away. Maybe he thought I was crazy, too. But now, I knew. Aaron Burr got Harry. Just as he had killed Hamilton in that old quarrel long ago. Alexander, starring Robert Young and Geraldine Fitzgerald. The James Thurber story, which was tonight's tale of Suspense. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, who with Robert Louis Sheehan, guest director, Freya Howard, author, and Bernard Herman and Lucien Marowick, conductor and composer, collaborated in presenting A Friend to Alexander. Just a word about the star of tonight's show, Robert Young. Today, he's most remembered as the affable insurance salesman in Father Knows Best. He appeared in over 100 films between 31 and 52, co-starred with some of the studio's most illustrious actresses, such as Catherine Hepburn, Norma Shearer, and Joan Crawford, to name a few. Yet most of his assignments consisted of B-movies. As an MGM contract player, he was resigned to the fate of most of his colleagues to accept any film assigned to him or risk being placed on suspension. Despite his trademark portrayal of happy, well-adjusted characters, Young's bitterness toward Hollywood casting practices never diminished, and he suffered from depression and alcoholism, culminating in a suicide attempt in January of 1991. Later, he spoke candidly about his personal problems in an effort to encourage others to seek help. Stay tuned now for Our Miss Brooks, next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Eve Arden to star as Our Miss Brooks. This episode was first broadcast in 1948.
Palmolive Soap, Your Beauty Hope, and Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous dream girl hair bring you Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Brooks teaches English at Madison High School, and although like most of our teachers, she possesses a higher-than-average intelligence, she also possesses the higher-than-average curiosity of most of our women, especially when it comes to weighing machines. There's nobody more concerned about the result than a female who has just deposited her penny in the slot. Unless it's the male tub of lard who was on the scale when I got there. (laughs) This happened last Wednesday after school. I was passing the drugstore and just happened to have a penny on me. Tuesday was payday. (laughs) So I approached the weighing machine, and like I said, this brewery horse was stomping on the springs. (laughs) And when he saw his weight on the little card, he looked around the drugstore, then made tracks for a sign saying, Girdle Department. (laughs) I calmly stepped aboard, and when my card came out, I glanced casually at my weight, chuckled as if to say, how much accuracy can you expect for a cent? (laughs) I was just about to throw the card away When I noticed my fortune printed on the back It said A tall dark man is coming into your life Then of course I did drop the card It landed in my purse And I proceeded on home (laughs) By the next morning I'd forgotten about it completely As usual I'd left word for Mrs. Davis My landlady To wake me at 7.30 What is it? Better hurry, Connie. You've only got 20 minutes. 20 minutes? What time is it? 7.10, and you've only got 20 minutes to sleep. Oh, fine. (laughs) Well, come on in, Mrs. Davis. Did you have a good night, Connie? I said, did you have a good night? Good night, Mrs. Davis. (laughs) You better get up now, Connie. Here, I brought you some fruit juice. Go on, Connie, take a sip. Oh, what kind of juice is this? It's a combination. Pineapple, papaya, and passion fruit. (laughs) It's a genuine Hawaiian recipe. What do you stir it with, a ukulele? (laughs) After you drink it, we'll have a nice... Why, Connie, what's that little white card? What little white card? This one here on your night table. Let's see. A tall, dark man is coming into your life. Now, who do you suppose that could be? Well, it's not Sonny Tuff. He's a blonde. <laughs> Maybe they mean Mr. Philip Boynton. The bashful biologist? No, Mrs. Davis. So far, he's managed to remain in the suburbs of my life. <laughs> well, of course, I don't believe in fortunes on cards and crystal gazing and palm reading and all that nonsense. There is, however, a logical and scientific way to arrive at certain conclusions about one's personal destiny. What's that, Mrs. Davis? He leaves. Now, you hurry and get dressed, and I'll brew the tea. After breakfast, I'll do your reading. All right, Mrs. Davis. Oh, just a minute. What is it, Connie? Before I get out of bed, you better take that tall, dark man off my night table. <laughs> Finish with your tea, Connie. Yes, Mrs. Davis. Mm, let's see now. Where are the leaves? Well, most of them are in my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. There's plenty left for a reading. First, we revolve the cup three times slowly between our hands, then quickly turn it over onto the saucer. There. Well, what do you know? The weight card was right. What? There he is, right there in the cup. 
the tall, dark man who's coming into your life. Don't tell me you can't see him. Oh, of course. For a minute, I didn't recognize him with all those tea leaves on. <laughs> this is an amazing coincidence, Connie. I'd like to get another reading, if you don't mind. Oh, not at all, Mrs. Davis. It's always nice to be sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what do you know about that? I know, he's gone. Left town without even saying goodbye. <laughs> Connie, be serious. This is an amazing thing I see in this cup. What now, Mrs. Davis? Uh, I don't think I should tell you. Why not? Because you're not even married yet. Oh, but I'm a big girl now. <laughs> I'll have to find out sooner or later. I never would have believed it. Three of them. Three tall, dark men? No, Constance. Three little ones. Three little dark men? <laughs> children. You're going to have three children. Well, don't look so shocked, Mrs. Davis. Maybe they're his by a former marriage. <laughs> no, no, Connie, they're yours. But how can you keep your job as school if you've got to take care of... Oh, I know. I'll get Mrs. Fletcher. When my niece Bertha had the twins, Mrs. Fletcher took over completely. Oh, now, just a minute, Mrs. Davis. Don't you now, quiet, Connie. You can't prepare. You can't prepare too soon for this sort of thing. Now, where did I put Mrs. Fletcher's phone number? I did a I don't want Mrs. Fletcher. I'll take care of my kids myself. <laughs> After all, I'm only trying to be helpful. Oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Davis. This tea leaf business is pretty fascinating. But I'd better get ready. Walter Denton's giving me a list of school again. Oh, is your car in the repair shop, Connie? Yes, it is. What's wrong with it this time? Well, I can't be sure, but I think that Joe, the mechanic, and my car are that way about each other. <laughs> Every time I try to separate them, the car blows a gasket. <laughs> oh, there's Walter now. I'll be right with you, Walter. Oh, before you go, Connie, please do me one favor. Certainly. What is it? Promise me you'll be very careful today. Careful? Oh, you mean about my fortune. Mrs. Davis, I give you my word of honor. I'll let you know in plenty of time to call Mrs. Fletcher. <laughs> Walter, it's very nice of you to keep driving me to school like this. Oh, that's all right, Miss Brooks. I don't like to take advantage of the fact that because your car is incapacitated and I can jump into the breach now and then, transportation-wise, that is, you can't very well refuse gracefully, but I'm telling you, you can before I even ask you. That's square enough, isn't it? Square as things in Clyde McCoy. <laughs> but being an English teacher, I practically understand you, Walter. Just what kind of advice do you need this morning? Oh, it's a girl. What's a girl? Harriet Conklin. Why, Walter Dent, you've been wearing your glasses again. <laughs> what about Harriet? Well, I'm afraid it's a pretty long story. That's all right. I have a pretty long ear. Well, as you know, Miss Brooks, Harriet Conklin is the daughter of Mr. Conklin. Granted. Who, in turn, is married to Harriet's mother, Mrs. Conklin. It all started the night before last. See, I told you it was a long story. Only the way you tell it. Go ahead, <laughs> Well, the night before last, I had a date with Harriet to go to the movies. When I got to her house to pick her up, she acted like I had bubonic plague or something. Did you? I mean... <laughs> what did she do? Well, she said that she couldn't be bothered with me anymore because a tall, dark man was coming into her life. Her too? <laughs> Must be an epidemic. Where did she find out about this tall, dark man? Well, that's where her mother comes in. Maybe there's a shorter way to listen to this story. <laughs> her mother and Harriet had taken out the Ouija board that afternoon. That's when they found out about this tall guy. 
Well, after all, Walter, you can't compete with a non-existent rival. That's just the trouble. He's not non-existent. He's not? No, he materialized yesterday. Oh, now, Walter, please. No, it's true, Miss Brooks. Harriet told me all about him when I called yesterday evening, although I wasn't going to after the way she treated me the evening before. But when I did, she told me that this tall, dark French teacher had checked in at their house to give her father his papers before he began teaching French at school today. I know you're telling me something because I can see your lips moving. (laughs) What is it, Walter? Well, don't you understand, Miss Brooks? It's called an exchange deal. This teacher came over from Paris, France. What did we send them? Two outfielders and a shortstop? (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but I do know that Harriet sounded like this French teacher was a combination of Maurice Chevrolet and... and... I know. Maurice Chevrolet and Charles Buick. (laughs) I was going to say Charles Boyer. (laughs) That's what I was afraid you were going to say. This teacher must be quite an interesting personality. What's his name? Let's see now. Well, there's an article about him in the school paper. Oh, I know. It's Manette. Jack Wee's Manette. <laughs> Jack Wee's Manette? Oh, you mean Jacques Monet. Say, that is a romantic-sounding name, all right. I'll bet he's a very nice person. Oh, it's not him I'm worried about. It's Harriet. Since he showed up, she thinks the Ouija board is infallible. The Ouija board? Oh, that's ridiculous. Harriet's much too sensible to... Why, <laughs> I'm surprised at her. Next thing you know, she'll be having her tea leaves read. Three children? (laughs) Well, here we are, Miss Brooks. Thanks, Walter, and don't worry too much about losing Harriet's affections. I'm sure the French teacher is just a passing phase in her life. Hey, there's Harriet on the steps. I'll go find a place to park. See you later, Miss Brooks. All right, Walter. Hello there, Harriet. What? Oh, hello, Miss Brooks. You'll have to forgive me if I seem to be in a reverie. I've heard about your Ouija board. I don't care what anybody says, Miss Brooks. There must be something to it. Imagine the very next day he came along. It's the first time I've ever seen capital letters in conversation. (laughs) He must be quite attractive. Attractive isn't the word, Miss Brooks. No, what is the word? Heavenly. Super heavenly. Stratospherically heavenly. (laughs) I'll come up a little if you'll come down a little. (laughs) Oh, wait till you see him, Miss Brooks. Adjust safety belt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, Harriet, I think it's all very natural for a schoolgirl to have crushes. I had them myself. You, Miss Brooks? Yes, me, Miss Brooks. I wasn't born an English teacher, you know. I also think it's perfectly normal for a girl your age to think like a schoolgirl in other ways. But I do say this, and I mean it sincerely, Harriet. You don't have to act like a schoolgirl. I don't know why. But you are the principal's daughter, Harriet, no? May we, Monsieur Monet, may we? <laughs> oh, this is Miss Brooks. Miss Brooks, je suis enchanté. That is, I've heard so much about you. But it is, uh, how do you say, understatement. You're so useful, so lovely. Why, you're like a pupil, not a teacher. 
Run along, Harriet. You'll be late for school. <laughs> but we're at school. Oh? When did that get here? Something is wrong. Wrong? Oh, I should say not, Monsieur Monet. It's just that, well, we don't meet such distinguished visitors every day, and, well, they must have given at least three outfielders and two short stuff for him. Pardon? Oh, uh, it's just a figure of speech. Oh, and a lovely figure you have, too. <laughs> oh, this is a doll. <laughs> Can we go into the school, Monsieur Monet? Uh, oui, yes. I have to stop at Monsieur Conklin's office. You, uh, you show me where it is, huh? No? I, I show you where is it is, uh, yes. <laughs> and I hope Mr. Boynton sees us together. I'll direct Monsieur Monet to Daddy's office, Miss Brooks. Oh, you won't have time, Harriet. You have to freshen up before your class. Freshen up? But I just stepped out of the shower. Then give yourself a rub down. You'll catch cold. <laughs> this way, Monsieur. Come in. Well, it's our new French teacher. Good morning, Monsieur Monet. Bonjour, Monsieur Conklin. Uh, excuse me, I mean good morning. Hi, Daddy. Hello, Harriet. Uh, Mr. Conklin, I just came in to volunteer my assistance if you're looking for somebody to show Mr. Monet around the school. I told Miss Brooks that I'd be glad to take Mr. Monet, Daddy. Of course, I'd need your permission to cut one of my classes. Maybe English. I'm pretty well advanced in that. Me too. Maybe we both could cut it. <laughs> please, please, I would not want either of you to, uh, how do you say, put out your sails. Oh, it would be silly to put out ourselves now. After all, we just started to blaze. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be able to show Mr. Monet the rope. But, Daddy, you're too busy. Oh, much too busy, Daddy. I mean... <laughs> Mr. Conklin, I have a study period coming up in which I don't I have want to hear any more about it. Sure, Mr. Monet wouldn't want us to feel that because of him our entire system was disrupted. Oh, certainly not. I can find my my own way about the premises. I'm sure that Well, in that case, come along, Harriet. You're in my first class, you know. Oh, one moment, Miss Wolf. Would you do me the great honor of perhaps having lunch have uh, with me? With pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I did have a date with Mr. Boynton. Hmm, I think I'll keep that date, too. Maybe it'll open his eyes a little. Uh, I'll see you in the cafeteria, Mr. Monet. But I thought Mr. Monet was going to have lunch with us. Didn't you tell me you were going to invite him to the house, Daddy? Invite him? Uh, well, I suppose so. Uh, thank you just the same, Monsieur, but I would rather not leave the school proper during my first day. Ah, an admirable spirit, Monet. If more of our homegrown teachers had it, Madison High School would be a better place in which to learn something. Something like English, for example. Yes. Well, as the little boy in the fist ad says, it's time to retire. Come in. Hello, Mr. Boynton. Oh, it's you, Miss Brooks. How are you today? Fine, thanks. I'm glad I caught you before your class got in. I, I wanted to ask you about lunch. Oh, I'll be happy to join you. Thanks very much. Oh. Well, I had other plans, but how can I resist an invitation like that? By the way, Mr. Boynton, do you speak any foreign language? Just American. <laughs> <laughs> Why, Mr. Boynton, you're getting quite a sense of humor. 
must catch it from your frog. <laughs> really, though, do you speak French, for instance? No, I don't. Then you wouldn't know what a French person would be saying to me if he said it in French, would you? No, I wouldn't. Good. <laughs> this may be a very interesting lunch for all of us. All of us? Yes, you see, there's a new teacher in school. Oh, you, you mean Jacques Monet? You've met him? Oh, yes. I had to deliver some papers to Mr. Conklin's home yesterday, and he was there. Oh, he's a prince of a chap. We had quite a time together. It'd be nice to see him again at lunch. Oh, it will. Oh, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, you'll uh, have to apologize to him for me. I'm afraid I'll be a little late. Oh, you will? That's too bad, Mr. Boynton. Why will you be late? Well, it's McDougal here. You know, my bullfrog. He's got me worried, Miss Brooks. It's his throat. He can't seem to croak above a whisper. Oh, that's too bad. Poor McDougal. Hi, Max. <laughs> he must have gargled. It sounds pretty good, but... No, I'll still have to stay close to him to see how the medication I'm giving him catches on. I'll get to lunch as soon as I can, though. Ah, oh, good old Jacques Monet. He's a real man's man. You've been wrong before, Brother Boynton, but never like this. <laughs> Here's a nice table, Mr. Monet. Let's sit down. Oui. Uh, yes, Miss Brooks. This is certainly a big restaurant. It's a cafeteria, Mr. Monet. Uh, yes. Uh, now then, shall we look at the carte du jour, bill of fare? Bill of fare? Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean menu. They don't have any menus here, Mr. Monet. No? Then how do you select an order? Well, here you don't exactly select an order. You just sort of point and holler. <laughs> I'll show you in a minute. But first, I'd like to ask a little favor, Mr. Monet. As you know, Mr. Boynton is joining us for lunch. Oh, yes. Yes, fine fellow, Mr. Boynton. A real uh, man's man. On him, it's it. <laughs> I mean, he is a very nice man, but he's sort of shy. Shy? Mm -hmm. Why should he be shy? He is tall, muscular, with a fine head of hair, good teeth, pleasing manner. What else is new? <laughs> what I wanted to ask of you is very simple. You see, Mr. Boynton is too bashful to ask you himself, but I'm sure he'd get a tremendous kick. That is, he'd enjoy it if you spoke nothing but French during our lunch. But why? Well, he's trying to learn how to speak your language. He understands it fine, but he's not sure of his pronunciation. He could learn a lot from you about a lot of things. <laughs> well, I suppose I could help him. He's coming over now, Mr. Monet. Uh, remember how you kissed my hand this morning? Uh, Would you do it again, please? What? Uh, but uh, Quickly, I... Mr. Monet. It's part of Mr. Boynton's education. <laughs> Hurry, here, my hand. Uh, Miss Brooks, I don't like to be, how do you say, gouchy, but you're pushing out one of my feelings. <laughs> What's the trouble, Mr. Monet? Got something caught in your teeth? Just an old cuticle of mine. <laughs> Sit down, Mr. Boynton. Le mot savage aujourd'hui, monsieur. Yeah. Uh, how do you like our cafeteria? C'est bon. Mr. Monet says it's lovely, but not half as lovely as I am. Why, Mr. Monet, how flattering. <laughs> Let's see now. What do we eat today? Well, uh, how about the roast beef? That's what I'm going to have. Me too. How about you, Mr. Monet? Tell him in French. Je désire un petit mamite, un vichyfoise, une salade et un tranche de roast beef, des haricots verts, des crêpes suzettes et une débitale. Oh, Mr. Monet, you and your compliments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, stop 
stop that and tell Mr. Boynton what you want to eat. But I do not understand. I... Uh, Mr. Monet, um, quel voulez-vous manger? Mr. Uh, Boynton, you little spy, you can speak French. Uh, no, I can't, Miss Brooks. Not really. Those are just a few words I picked up when I was in the Army. The Army? You were stationed in New Orleans, and you know it. But near the French Quarter. <laughs> well, uh, let us not delay any longer. I don't suppose they have what I really want for lunch, but maybe, eh? Do they ever have frog's legs? What? Oh, don't say it, Mr. Monet. <laughs> well, uh, why not? Frog's legs are delicious to eat. Let's all have them, eh? Me? Eat frog's legs? I'd feel like a... like a cannibal. If you'll excuse me, I, I'm afraid I've lost my appetite. I'll, I'll see you later, Miss Brooks. Why, uh, why would he feel like a cannibal if he ate frog's legs? He is not a frog. <laughs> Only in some ways is he not a frog, Mr. Monet. But don't worry about Mr. Boynton now. Oh, yes, you're right. You're right, Miss Brooks. You know, in a way, in a way, I'm glad we're alone. There is something I would like to ask you. You see, I, I have been searching for just the right one ever since I come to America. Now, now, well, I feel that my search is at an end. You are the one I've been searching for. Oh, Mr. Monet, but Mr. Boynton's gone now. You don't have to talk like that to me. Oh, I don't think of Mr. Boynton. I, I think of you, Miss Brooks. Ma chère, Miss Brooks. I have something personal to talk to you about. But right now I'm late for an appointment with Mr. Conklin. Can you meet me someplace, right after school? How about the Casbah? I mean... <laughs> I mean the park. Fine, fine. Of course, I have several papers to mark, and besides, I have to formulate my plans for tomorrow's class, and there are some other routine affairs I must take care of. Oh, I realize this. How long will it all take? Well, school doesn't let out until three, and it's a 20-minute walk to the park. Would 310 be all right? <laughs> I, I will come right to the point, Miss Brooks. I have met you here in the park to make you what you call proposal. Proposal? But, Mr. Monet, you hardly know me. Oh, I know you well enough for this, Miss Brooks. After talking to many, many women, Mrs. Conklin, little Mrs. Conklin, about Harriet. Mm. I mean, I know you are the ideal woman for me. Oh, this is very flattering, Mr. Monet, but... Marriage is a serious step. Marriage? I cannot marriage with you. I am already married. With you? <laughs> well, with my wife, Helene. She arrives here next week. For you, I have another proposal. Any other proposal is only good for a sock in the nozzle. <laughs> no, no, you, you do not understand. I want you to accept a position as tutor for my three children. Three children? Oh, Mrs. Davis will love this. Well, they need very badly coaching in English before they can enter school here. And, well, what do you say, Miss Wolf? Will you help us out? Mr. Monet, may I ask you one question? Of course. What is it? Among your children, is there a tall, dark one in the crowd? <laughs> And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, I promised Mr. Monet I'd help him out with his children. 
But I must admit I was a little let down when I found out he wasn't a bachelor. And I said as much to Mrs. Davis. Yes, Connie, it's a shame that such a darling man is already married. But he served his purpose as far as upsetting Mr. Boynton goes. What do you mean, Connie? Well, the day after we had lunch together, Mr. Boynton was so concerned about the situation, guess what he did? What? He put a brand new lock on his frog's cage. <laughs> Next week, tune in to another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Palmolive Soap, Your Beauty Hope, and Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, green girl hair. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written and directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Boynton is played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenner, Gloria McMillan, and Gerald Moore. <laughs> For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North, the exciting, fun-packed adventures of an amateur detective and his beautiful wife. Tune in Tuesday evenings over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at the same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. You want to be free to work where you choose, start your own business, own your own home, invest your money as you see fit, then the American way of life is best for you. We have the highest standard of living. Since 1910, we have practically doubled our annual income, yet our working time has been cut by about 18 hours a week. Let's start to realize how fortunate we are. Let's work a little harder on our jobs and at being better citizens. Let's remember that the better we produce, the better we live. Stay tuned now for Lomond Abner. Bob Lamont speaking at the CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Sherlock Holmes, followed by My Favorite Husband. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.